The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we saw more wild action in the commodities market with copper hitting $10,000 a ton on Thursday, a price not seen since 2011. Mid all the action, unfortunately, I forgot my copper $10,000 hat at home, but we did get some insight on the metals rally. So we spoke with Emily Weiss, an emerging market strategist at State Street, ahead of copper hitting that record level. And we started by asking her, what are some of the factors that are impacting the supply side? Yeah, I think that's exactly the issue, Joe. So what we have here is that we know that the global uh, demand is there. And certainly we've seen that reflected across the board in commodities. But now turning to the supply side, um, and particularly some of the, the major suppliers of copper, and in particular the two countries that I follow, of, of Chile and Peru, there are some domestic political issues that are keeping investors a bit more cautious on the asset markets and are also keeping uh, future investments on further copper production, mines, et cetera, uh, at bay for the immediate term as investors sort of wait to see how these political situations shake out. Talk to us about the political situations, particularly, for example, in Chile at the moment, because are you, how clear are we getting in terms of the strike action? How far could this spill into miners, for example? Yeah, so currently we're on day two of a, of a port strike, a port worker strike ongoing in Chile. And there isn't yet broad involvement from some of the miners' unions, although they have sort of indicated that they're watching this and could potentially get involved. And this all essentially sparked from um, recent moves from the Panera presidency uh, to essentially push back against recent um, recent dips into, into emergency savings programs. So Chileans for two different cycles now have had the ability to dip into pension, uh, their pension savings and be able to take some of that out given the COVID issues. They're now proposing that for a third time, given that Chile is back in lockdowns, unfortunately, and still dealing with the impact of COVID. Uh, but the government tried to push back against that a bit in, in terms of looking out for the pension funds and how much of the funds could essentially be withdrawn. People haven't liked that. In general, these programs are very popular, and, and this has had a big hit on President Panera's uh, approval ratings. Uh, it certainly has. But the, I mean, they keep sort of pushing this idea here, Emily, though, that there is sort of a demand component here and that that will somehow, I don't know, save them, if, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still a, as much as the, 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 the we're seeing these tensions bubble up. Um, it, there is still a huge demand for these commodities, and, and essentially that does impact the growth story. In Chile, around half of the exports are copper exports to other countries, and in Peru, it's around 25%. In Colombia, you've got uh, one-third of uh, their exports are in oil. So certainly the, the, the correlation with commodity prices tends to be pretty strong, particularly with the currency. However, what we are seeing recently is that some of those correlations are starting to break down a bit, and in particular are running below now some of their multi-year averages. So that's suggesting there's a bit more at play than just this bullish commodity super cycle story that maybe I would have initially hoped there was a few months ago. 
Let's talk a little bit more about that demand side. We're actually having a conversation right at this time yesterday with John Turek about um, some mm -hmm. of the um, the slow, slightly uh, slowing credit impulse out of China. And of course, that could be a potential big source of demand, infrastructure, real estate spending in China. Could there, is there signs of demand abating or that is there a point in which $10,000 copper a ton in London starts to uh, push back, uh, create a little bit of demand destruction? Yeah, I think John made some really good points about not being overly concerned about the China credit impulse, but it being something um, that's important to watch. And notably, I think one of the factors that he brought up is that we now have these other areas that are making up some of some of that growth impulse, particularly in Europe or in the U.S., um, and particularly in the U.S., I think we see that the, the plans that have been proposed by the Biden administration around infrastructure and pursuing more green energy solutions, all of that is very copper intensive and, and will require uh, a lot of a lot of imports of copper, uh, you know, from nations like Chile and Peru. The question is how quickly they can ramp up these sort of investments. Um, it, it obviously takes time in order, in order to expand on these production capabilities. Right. And also it depends on how the political environment unfolds. Talking of politicians knowing exactly that sort of moon music around infrastructure. We spoke with the Chilean energy and mining minister, and this is what he had to say about ultimate demands. In the medium term, as, as uh, renewable energy and electromobility agendas accelerate, the demand for copper will, will go up. And I think that is the, the, the most, I would say, permanent trend. So, Emily, like, clearly they recognise the trends are in their favor. They've got to work mm -hmm. out whether Chile, whether Peru can dine out on being the supply side. Where else could pick up the slack? Where else could be doing well out of the bat that politics doesn't look so, so well, useful in places like Peru and Chile right now? Sure. So while the politics concerns are, are very real, um, we are looking at a fairly optimistic outlook for Latin America in the second half of this year. Um, unfortunately, that uh, that recovery side has been delayed um, for, for longer than we would have liked. Um, we've seen that going back into lockdowns and COVID still being a very real issue, along with the delayed vaccination campaign, have, have kept emerging markets on the back foot. Now, the commodity story provides a, a tailwind, certainly. The politics is the headwind. Balancing out those two, though, we do end up with a situation in the latter half of this year where there could be this rebound in emerging markets, uh, particularly driven by LATAM as that engine of exporting commodities and, and, and generally having a, a high correlation to global growth. And that correlation is there. And of course, when we talk about the correlation, Emily, you also have to talk about currencies. The dollar doesn't seem to be like it's going to be as big of a boogeyman uh, as some people might have thought it was going to be, uh, say, a few months ago, even with sort mm -hmm. of this move that we've seen in yields. Yeah, we're finally starting to see that dollar move that we were hoping would happen in, in January and February of this year. Um, and, and that is something that I expect will continue to be in play in the coming months. Uh, dollar softness with most of the good news in the U.S. priced in and starting to see rest of the world growth pick up um, along with rest of the world vaccinations pick up. Uh, so I think there really is an optimistic case to be made with dollar going generally lower and also with yields somewhat capped in the range that they've been in. Um, th there is an opportunity here for emerging markets. And, and I do think there's a lot of places that look pretty optimistic. Uh, but, you know, just real quickly, and you mentioned it earlier, I mean, one of the things, it really is striking, the, di the divergence between virus trends in the U.S. and perhaps in Europe where the vaccination campaign is starting to gather steam finally versus the rest of the world where it's mm -hmm. uh, pretty stark. 
How much downside, is there still downside risk that perhaps people aren't thinking of further lockdowns, further demand destruction, or uh, do people, would you say investors have a realistic take on the situation uh, ex uh, the developed countries? Well, I think we've seen that um, downside risk play out in Chile already. Um, quite frankly, they were one of the countries that had one of the better vaccination rollouts uh, in emerging markets, but also in developed markets to start this year. Right. Uh, and that was really encouraging. And then we quickly saw that turn back to lockdowns and, and back to pretty strict lockdowns that are still ongoing. So I think there is still a lot of caution to be had, but the good news is I think as markets are forward-looking mechanisms, um, there is a lot of looking further down the line of how things could improve for the better rather than focusing on, on the medium right. term places like India and Brazil where things are rough. Now this week, we also got a lot of news on the tax front, more details on President Biden's tax plan and how it would impact theoretically corporations and wealthy individuals. He laid out his plans in a joint address to Congress. The administration wants to pay for its proposed $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill by raising the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21%. Nir Kesar, a Bloomberg opinion columnist and the founder of Unison Advisors, came on to talk about why he thinks corporate loopholes actually matter more than the rate itself. We started by asking Nir what his research has to say about what a change in tax levels means for stocks. Hi, Joe. You know, I, well, there's been a lot of debate about this uh, corporate, uh, this, this plan to raise corporate tax rates. And I wanted to see for myself what, you know, uh, what, what is the level at which companies actually pay taxes. And we have a lot of data, obviously, at Bloomberg. And so I dug up all the data I could find, which was roughly um, uh, data on 800 public companies, income and tax paid going back to 2011. And I was surprised by the results. What I found was that in 2018, when the tax rate, the corporate tax rate went down from 35% to 21%, the amount of money that, that companies actually paid in taxes didn't go down as much as you <laughs> would think, given the gap. Um, and, so, and so it raised the question for me, what happened and what can we expect if we raise the corporate tax rate back up? And what I think is going on is that the higher the tax rate, the greater the incentive for companies to skirt it effectively, to, to go through the tax code and find the loopholes. And so I fear that if we raise the tax, the tax uh, rate back to 28, up to 28 percent, but we don't close the loopholes in the tax code, that we're not going to raise the revenue that we think we're going to raise. Hmm. I would like to see Congress first close the loopholes, and then we can talk about how high the rate needs to be to, 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 uh, to get to our revenue goal. Yeah, Joe Manchin, of course, the key Democrat amongst all of this, really talking not only about loopholes, but about actually getting people to pay what they already owe and getting the oversight, the IRS, to be a bit more invested in. But from your perspective, Nir, what loopholes, therefore, need to be the first and foremost focused on? Well, you know, there's so many. I mean, I, um, I, uh, I went to law school many decades ago, and um, I took a class in corporate taxation. And I can tell you that in those days, it was the corporate tax code was just a maze, an impenetrable maze of holes and exceptions. And, you know, it's a goldmine for lawyers and accountants to go through and find ways to get around the, t and the taxes. And so I, I think, you know, one of the problems is it's not going to be the kind of thing where you can point to one or two things that you can easily close. It really will take an overhaul of the tax code in order to accomplish this. 
And of course, that's a very heavy lift. It's much easier to just raise the corporate tax rate. And you might be able to get to the same place, but it wouldn't be as good a result, in my opinion, from a public policy perspective, because ultimately a more complicated tax code is less transparent. It's viewed as being less fair. Um, and and also it's it's just easier to get around. And so I think we'd all be better off if we spent the time on the front end to really make this, the tax code simpler. Um, and, and I think it will be, and, and by the way, it would also mean that the headline corporate tax rate would be lower, which has some benefits optically as well. So what does it mean for you, like thinking about as a portfolio manager, as an investor, we're going into this season um, where taxes across the board, whether we're talking corporations, individuals, uh, capital gains, it all seems to be on the table. None of us know exactly what the final package is gonna look like if there even is something that gets passed. But it's all out there, lots of discussion. Market's not uh, anxious about it at all right now, basically uh, at all-time highs. Is this a source of uh, anxiety for any reason, or is this a bad reason uh, to be negative? It's, it's. I mean, you know, it, it's funny, Joe. I'm working on a piece, actually, for tomorrow, and my editor might be mad at me for previewing it here. But I, I will say that I think where this comes into play is what happens ultimately to corporate earnings. What impact does this have on corporate earnings over the next several years? Not this quarter, not next quarter. And the reason that's such an important question is I think people, investors generally don't realize that the returns from the market in the, during the last decade largely came from earnings growth. Of the 13% annual return from the S&P during the 2010s, 10% of it came from earnings growth. And so with valuations where they are, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to expect them to expand further. And with dividend yields at roughly 1.4% on the S&P, the return has to come from earnings growth. And if you're gonna have higher corporate tax rates, you're probably gonna have lower earnings. That's gonna have an impact on expected return, and I think investors have to think about it. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we got a rundown of all of this week's economic data with Michelle Meyer, the head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities. We talked about everything from GDP to the housing market. We started by asking Michelle if the GDP report confirmed that the U.S. recovery still has momentum. I think it was actually very, very clear in the data. So not only, Joe, as you mentioned, a headline growth in excess of 6%, but once you dig into the details, what you find is very strong domestic demand. So consumer spending running over 10% on an annualized basis in the first quarter, really driven by good spending, still durable good spending in particular, services still a little bit softer. So there's a lot more to come in the sense of services spending. And then investment was strong too. 
equipment investment, um, residential investment, intellectual property. The only weakness was commercial real estate, which makes sense. Um, so when you actually take out the inventory drag, if you take out the trade deficit widening, you get domestic demand of nearly 11% in Q1. That's a lot of momentum heading into the rest of the year. A lot of momentum when supply is just trying to get up and running and is also curtailed by idiosyncratic issues. Talk to us, Michelle, how much you're worrying about these so-called bottlenecks, particularly when it comes to the chip sector. So I do think that there's this tension in the economy now where, you know, going back to just kind of economics 101, demand is outpacing supply. We've had this burst of demand, which I think Fed Chair Powell described very this dynamic very well yesterday. It's being fueled by stimulus, it's being fueled by reopening, and it's happening very fast. And it's just taking a lot longer for the supply side to accommodate that. Um, and working against the supply side are, as you all noted, the supply chain issues, particularly in certain categories like semiconductors, for example, if you're seeing play out in the auto sector, um, some concerns over labor shortages. So it's going to take time for the supply side to catch up, but there's no reason that it can't. Um, and ultimately, that should lend itself to stronger output. This is the key question that we have to dive into further, the idea that there's no reason that it can't. Because ultimately, that yeah. is uh, the sort of core assumption when uh, the Fed chair and other economists talk about transitory inflation. So far, yeah. we haven't seen it. It actually seems to be uh, getting worse. Uh, Caroline mentioned the chips. That doesn't seem to be getting uh, better yet for the car companies. You look at lumber. We had a, you know, a, a, a sawmill company said, uh, which they should be profiting greatly, came out and said today that they couldn't actually hit their estimates because they were having uh, shortages of uh, uh, freight and logistics and the trucking companies and the rail companies couldn't get. So there does seem to be this sort of like compounding bottleneck that's emerging. What does it look like? Do, we have, do you have a timeline for when you think uh, the supply side catches up, so to speak? Yeah, so you're 100% right. I mean, it's you should be seeing the supply curve shift out and it's shifting back in more, right? So it's it's it there 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 are challenges. Um but I, it, it, there are all there are reasons behind all of these challenges on the supply side, whether it's, you know, the what happened around uh, Suez Canal that created even greater delays, the supply chain issues as a result of the fact that there's still a lot of COVID cases and virus concerns abroad where a lot of the manufacturing is happening. Um, you know, so I think it's reasonable to argue that these are issues that can be resolved. Um, and there's clearly an incentive to do so on the part of manufacturers, on the part of producers. Um, it's just a matter of having enough time to get through these challenges and to meet the increase in demand. So I would imagine for the next few months, this tension continues. It's not something that we can just snap our finger and it all gets fixed in the economy. It can right. take months. It can take even quarters for it to be resolved. Um, and that's what the Fed wants to see play out, right? They really want time to figure out how this ends up uh, working itself through um, and what that ultimately means for prices. Today, we not only got GDP, but we also got the latest round, well, of other data, jobless claims and a sprinkling of housing. Yeah, pretty uh, impressive numbers still continuing for housing. We actually, pending home sales came in a little bit lighter than expectations. But, you know, part of the issue is there aren't many homes to sell. So hard to have yes. a real boom in pending home sales when there is essentially no inventory out there, as everyone keeps reminding us. So the question is, when will things improve or ease up or slow down in some way? 
want to bring back in Michelle Meyer, Bank of America Securities, head of U.S. economics. You know, I guess part of the question is with all these things, and this includes some of the commodity stuff, is when do we start to see demand start to abate? If prices go up for so many things so fast, when do we start to see, okay, well, eventually buyers have to pull back? Are we seeing any indication of that in housing yet? It really doesn't appear that we're seeing that yet. I think the biggest challenge for the housing market is simply the lack of supply, as you just noted. I mean, if you think about the month supply figures in the existing home market, we're close to record lows. The number of days on the market is unbelievably short. Um, and um, builders are aware, and you are see seeing phenomenal building permits numbers, very strong home builder confidence. They're trying to ram up construction and add to inventory. Um, which helped to ease some of the price pressure and allow for demand to continue. But no, I don't think it's a pricing issue, really. I think it's mm. a lack of supply. And, you know, one of the reasons that, that I, I suggest that's the case is if you look at some of the survey data, for example, the University of Michigan, Good Time to Buy series um, for housing, you know, people, you're not seeing the reports that prices are too high and therefore it's not good time to buy. Because remember, prices are high, but we've had this, influx of money in from stimulus, so people have cash on hand, and interest rates are still very low, and that helps affordability. It is a bit of a tale of the haves and the have-nots, though, because if you're living by stimulus check, you're probably not able to climb on that ladder right now, particularly if supply is thin. I'm aware of the inequality within this debate, but talk to us about what's happening in terms of when supply comes on tap, because at some point, does equilibrium come? Do we just remain at elevated levels? Do, do builders and, and lumber merchants keep their prices elevated? Yeah, so, so the first point that you made, the inequality story, is extremely important, something that I think often gets lost when we talk about these aggregate numbers for the overall economy, and that's something that I think we have to just always put an asterisk next to when we're talking about the, the economy and the trends. In terms of your second point about when does it all normalize and doesn't normalize, I do think, you know, the economics should work ultimately. The market should sort right. itself out in the sense of, you know, supply being able to catch up. And I think for housing, it's actually fairly straightforward because you are seeing builders ramp up construction. So if you think about the level of building permits for single family homes right now, and you extrapolate that forward, we're going to have a lot of homes hitting the market in the next six months or so, um, given what's in the works right now. Now, there are obstacles. The obstacles are being lumber prices are high, so they have to try to you know, figure out how to pass on some of those prices. There's challenges around labor shortages. Um, so there are, there are, there are frictions. Um, but I think the desire to accommodate the market and, um, you know, add to the supply is particularly for housing, given the amount of demand there is, I, I, I think it's there. And, and, and ultimately, that will cool home prices. So when you think about home prices nationally, we're running in the order of about 12% year over year. Um, you know, by the end of the year, we should be back down to single digit home price appreciation. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. And then finally, we talked about President Biden's American Families Plan and what it could mean for the labor market with Tina Chen, the president and CEO of Time's Up. 
Tina also served in the Obama White House as the chief of staff to former First Lady Michelle Obama. She's been a longtime advocate of paid family leave, saying we are in a caregiving crisis. So we started by asking Tina her perception on what chances the legislation had in passed. Well, it's actually a smart proposal because what the president did was to phase paid leave in, right? If you look closely at it, you know, you don't get to 12 weeks for everyone all at once. You phase it in over 12 years, gradually talking, you know, doing family leave for new parents first um, and then working your way across, you know, the, the workforce. So I think it's a really smart proposal to get paid family leave on the table for the first time in this country. You know, to the point that, you know, the president said the rest of the world isn't waiting for us. We are one of only two countries in the world, Caroline, that doesn't have a national paid leave policy. So guess what? Our companies who want to give paid leave to their workers, they're paying out of their pocket without any help on doing it. That puts small businesses at a disadvantage. And it puts our global companies at a disadvantage to con you know companies in other countries where there is support for paid family leave. You know, that's a really interesting point about this idea of essentially shifting some of the burden off the corporate balance sheet, off the uh, corporate payroll onto uh, the government's books. When you talk to, say, companies, how much of an appeal is that to them, this idea of like, let's just level the playing field like that? Well, I think more and more companies are seeing it because the interesting thing about the pandemic moment is everyone now realizes that caregiving is a problem. Right. Like CEOs have had to work from home with their kids, you know, home from school. You couldn't just go to work and ignore what was happening on the home front anymore. And so now I see businesses feeling the urgency is equally as workers have been feeling it for generations. So there is a desire right now for companies. And there are a lot of companies who, guess what? They can do it. A lot of the big players do it already. But you know, we know that four out of five private sector workers don't have access to paid leave now because they're in smaller companies. They're in startups. They're in the small businesses that can't afford to do this on their own. And a national paid leave program is going to spread that cost across everyone in the economy. And it's going to help. And it pays off. Actually, it creates jobs. It creates economic activity. And we know from the economic analysis we've done at Time's Up, it is stimulative to the economy. And music, and I'm sure to the economic analysis also done by the Treasury. And of course, Fe previous Fed chair, now head of the Treasury, Janet Yellen herself, also taking to Twitter and forms of social media to say your exact point, saying, look, historically, childcare, other social programs to help families haven't been seen as crucial investments underpinning American growth and productivity. This is a failure of perspective. Who have you still yet to convince, Tina? Who are the hmm. holdouts who look at Europe, who look at the UK, who look at every other country who's doing this and think, nah? Well, here's the interesting thing, Carolyn. It's not businesses, because we're hearing from business that they want this and they need this. It's not actually, you know, citizens who live in red states, because we know we did a survey, you know, at Time's Up, and we found that not only do nine out of 10 Democratic voters support comprehensive caregiving solutions, eight out of 10 Republicans support it too. So actual constituents in red states and red districts support this. It's just their elected leaders in red districts that seem not to be getting the message in Washington. And one of the things that needs to happen over the next few months is they need to hear that message from their constituents because we know this is what the vast majority of American people, regardless of what geography and zip code they live in, need this. Should there be some sort of a benefit to say families that homeschool or families where only one of the parent works or other situations in which 
uh, you know, sort of a, a federal paid leave uh, program for working parents or work people who go out to the workforce uh, may not may not help them as much. Well, look, actually, the, the one of the great things about the Biden proposal is he takes a comprehensive approach. So paid leave sits together and works together with things like an early investment in early child care and universal pre-K. It, it works with a system of a $400 billion investment in home care for the elderly. At some point, if you're homeschooling your kids, you may have a parent who needs home care services and you don't want to send them to a nursing home, especially after what we've seen gone on the last year. You right now, you're on a waiting list for years. A $400 billion investment in making affordable home and community-based care available to you, that's part of the package as well. That's what we need. We need a system of caregiving that works from when you're, you know, you have young children to when you yourself are elderly and supports caregivers in between and paid leave for workers. And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.